This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we have lots to talk about. We're going to be talking about type 2 diabetes. Also going to be talking about the latest research in heart disease and the treatments might surprise you. And also, David Harper joins me. We're talking about the scientifically proven keto diet. We've got bad sex habits and breaking up is hard to do, of course. So anyway, hopefully you'll tune in to the Sunday Night Health Show. Okay, I actually think I gave this away. Okay, I'm having one of those days, all right, so please bear with me. (laughs) But I'm delighted that I have this gentleman in the audience, in the audience, Ernest Kwanzaa. He has written an amazing book called Diabetics Journey, How Type 2 Diabetes Can Be Reversed and Cured. And he's done some work with WebMD recently. Uh, November is World Diabetes Month, and Ernest is a diabetes expert and author of this amazing book. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio tonight, Ernest. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So let's just have a quick um, summary of your background. What happened? You look amazing, by the way. You look even better tonight than the last time I saw you. Um, yeah, you look in fine form. I've lost, well, thank you. I've lost, lost more weight. You've lost some more by weight. By simply following um, the program that we was featured on WebMD that I developed with assistance from doctors. That's fantastic. Yes. I've gained the weight that you lost, so I'm not happy, but <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so tell me what happened to you quickly. What happened to me was I was a pastry chef at one point and I was too busy. And I started looking for a quick way to ha- uh, get some energy going. And I started feasting on sugar, mm-hmm. cookies for breakfast, cooler drinks, and eventually... One day I began to crave sugar and I just indulged. And the next thing I know, um, I started losing weight very rapidly and I noticed a sticky substance on my tongue and at the corner of my eye each morning and I didn't know what it was. So I panicked and I went to the doctor's office and he looked at me, he asked me a few questions and he says to me, Ennis, we think you've, been a, you've become a diabetic. And he sent me to do a blood test. The results came. And they summoned me to come to his office that same afternoon. And he told me, Ernest, you are not far from going into cardiac arrest. We've got to take action right now. Wow. That's how bad it was. Right. And you had gained a lot of weight prior to having that. Prior and- to that, I, my weight went from 185 to 220, I believe. Okay. And all of a sudden, within weeks, I shrank to 175. And an interesting thing is, because I was losing weight, I was happy. I'm thinking, yay, you know, I'm right. losing weight. Great. I didn't know that I was actually dying. Yeah, yeah. You were and wasting so, away, literally. Exactly. I was just basically wasting away. Mm-hmm. And so when they put me on metformin heavy doses, mm-hmm. my eyes shut off for four weeks. And I called and I started panicking. So this is normal because we, the sugar is beginning to withdraw from your eyes. Mm-hmm. So in four weeks, your eyes are going to readjust. So it was quite the experience. And after all this, I said to him, 
I went to him after two years. And I Sorry, said, did you lose your vision? Sorry for yeah, I lost my I lost my vision for four, for four weeks. Four weeks when they first completely completely I couldn't see anything. I could, I could only see uh, structures. Oh wow! I couldn't see people. And how tall are you, Ernest? I I'm six to... one. Okay, and you weigh two hundred twenty five pounds. I just want to say that I have some patients out there. I am talking to you now. You're five seven, five nine. You're weighing two hundred and twenty, two hundred thirty. I mean, I see this all the time. Like you're yeah. you're a tall man. I'm a th- yeah, I'm tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you still were uh, had gained a significant amount of weight, and we're eating all the wrong things, as exactly. are these patients of mine as well. Exactly. But anyway, yes. Fortunately, they've come to see me and I'm going to turn them around. Go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, so you lost your vision for four weeks. I lost but my vision to, for four weeks. You went weeks. on metformin, which is an hi- anti-hyperglycemic yes. medication. Mm-hmm. And then my vision came back, but I managed the diabetes for, for about two years. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I became very depressed. And I remember collapsing this in my bed and I started crying. The following day, I went straight to my doctor's office and I asked him point blank, Dr. Robinson, can type 2 diabetes be cured? He says, yes. And I said, why didn't you tell me two years ago? He says, because people don't listen. Hmm. And so that taught me medical doctors are not going to waste their time if you don't want to listen. Right. And I said, what should I do? He said, well, exercise like crazy. Exercise like crazy. Well, what does that mean? So I went home and that began a research process. And I went deep and deep and I discovered Dr. McCullough, Dr. Whitaker. I read and read and it started making sense to me. So what happens is you become diabetic when you have sugar, uh, refined sugar buildup inside your body, right? Mm-hmm. As an adult. For, yes, as uh, an and, adult. And I want to say that 90% of the diabetes in this world is adult onset type 2 type diabetes two. and 10% is type 1, type which is one. the juvenile, juvenile requiring exactly. insulin. Okay, so just so we're clear out there. And exactly. this is not only treatable and reversible, it's preventable. It's preventable. Actually, you can prevent type 2 diabetes. A recent research came from Finland by eating one egg a day. Really? One egg a day wow. will prevent you from becoming a type 2 diabetic. Is that right? Well, I eat about five, so I'm, done. I'm That's good, good, I guess. So I'm assuming that... <laughs> You guess you can probably probably know more about that. Maybe the nutrition content in yeah. eggs. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's all that for you. Okay. So we know that type 2 diabetes has reached epidemic levels, and it's only going to continue. And we're going to be looking at um, 450 million people worldwide. worldwide that will have this disease. They have it currently. It's 450 million. I'm sorry, uh, have it. But yes. by uh, 2040, what are we looking at? 1. 1.8 billion. billion. Right. Right. And that number is staggering. And you know, when I, I was, we were outside and we were having a little conversation. When I left Ghana in uh, 1982, they didn't know, West Africa didn't know what diabetes was. Mm-hmm. Now, 15% of all Africans are diabetic and it's killing them and they have no clue what is killing them. Oh, what a shame. And you know, uh, kids are less active today. There's a report out recently that shows that kids are not getting the required hour daily activity that they need. And so they're also headed toward type 2 diabetes. Headed. And diabetes Obesity. actually, uh, now some teenagers are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes because of their eating habits. Exactly. Exactly. It's all processed and quick and exactly. fast and okay. Okay. So um, 
you've you were diagnosed, you put up with it for two years, you got a bit depressed, you then went back to your doctor, your doctor said, and you know, and I've worked with doctors who have said, never talk to patients about weight. And I've said, why not? Because they'll never lose weight. And you know, when a patient was in my office and she said that her doctor told her to lose weight, I was going to tell her too, but fortunately I didn't because she gave me the, the, her doctor had already told her yes. and she was offended by it. So I thought, well, I'm not going to go there. Um, but she was highly offended at that. And you know, but that doesn't help her, you know? She was a smoker. She exactly. was sedentary and she had excess pounds on her, you know? Um, so this is what you had come to. And then you started your research. I started the research and I discovered something very interesting. Okay. We're going to actually go to break and we're going <laughs> to wait uh, to come after the break and hear what you discovered that was very interesting. And also we're going to hear about the reversal of diabetes type 2 and, and your cure for it. Okay, so stay with me. Ernest is going to stay here with me in the studio and we're going to talk about that. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. I am joined in the studio by Ernest Kwanzaa. He is the author of Diabetics Journey, How Type 2 Diabetes an epidemic today can be reversed and cured. All right, Ernest, thanks so much um, for those of you just joining us. And I do want to give a little shout out to uh, Winnipeg, our listeners in Winnipeg. You go, go team. <laughs> Great win in 29 years or something like that. It's been a long time. And, you know, if you think that I'm like an expert in football, think again, somebody actually put that in my ear. <laughs> anyway, but well done. I'm so happy for Winnipeg. That's fantastic. Um, I hope you're not too drunk tonight listening to the program. Um, so we're talking to Ernest and we're talking about diabetes, type 2, adult onset. And so Ernest went through, he gained a lot of weight. He was eating a lot of sugars at Pastry Chef. And then he lost a lot of weight. Was diagnosed, became depressed, talked to his doctor. Doctor suggested he exercise like crazy and he went home and did some research and discovered something. What was that discovery? What I discovered was when you become a diabetic, usually there's a sugar buildup inside your body over several years. That sugar, some of it will find its way into your bloodstream where it converts into fat. Once it converts into fat, it will coat your red blood cells, preventing them from absorbing insulin and transport it into your muscles to be, uh, to be used as energy. Right. And so that's what causes diabe diabetes type 2, mm -hmm. is the blood cells are not really absorbing sugar and transported anymore. And so to reverse that requires vigorous exercise. So what happens is the first step is the sugar will burn off inside your body. And then the next thing is your body requires sugar for energy, so it will begin to burn off the fat. And the first of the fat to burn off is the one cooling your red blood cells. Once that happens, usually within days, your red blood cells are now exposed and they're beginning to absorb sugar and transport it into your muscles to be used as energy. Diabetes is gone. Mm -hmm. When I, I, I experienced it firsthand, and what happened was, all of a sudden, I had a burst of energy. The next day, the energy increased by day number three, I was able to ride the elliptical for an hour. And I called my doctor's office. I said, Dr. Robinson, I have all this energy. What is going on? He said, come, let's do another test. The test came. He calls me to his office. He said, look at this. You are no longer diabetic. That was from three days of exercise? No. Uh, two years of metformin? After, after, after the two years of, diabetes, uh, of being, uh, managing the diabetes, and I started exercising, and it took 21 days. So you were exercising for 21 days? 21 days, nonstop. Okay. Non-stop for 21 day. days. Every day I went to the gym. And how long were you, did you spend at the gym? Uh, I spent a total of about an hour and a half. 
about an hour and a half every day at the gym. Every day at a gym nonstop. I learned that with type 2 diabetes, if you give it a, if you give it a break... It doesn't work. You have to be on top of it. Uh, every day. Every exercise. day. And that's what I le- tell people. And that's it. It's gone. Right. And in fact, Dr. McKenna's, who is a researcher at McMaster University, mm-hmm. wrote an article in the National Post. He says, exercise and diet, your diabetes will be cured. She used the word cured within four months. Right. And I've experienced this. And so when my diabetes was reversed and my doctor told me, I said to him, Dr. Robinson, I didn't know that this was possible. Mm-hmm. And he started asking me, how did you do it? And I started telling him about the exercise program and the meal plan that I developed mm-hmm. in order for it to work. Mm-hmm. Because I've written books in the past. Yes. And I said to him, I think I need to tell people that type 2 diabetes can be cured. He looked at me and said, that's an excellent idea. And he actually issued me a handwritten testimonial, which is in the book. I, re- I have read the book and it's fantastic. But for the listeners, can you share uh, a little bit about what is in the book and what is the diet plan? What did you do and um, to actually regain your health effectively? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be happy to. So the book basically is about my own uh, experience with diabetes. And the reason why I want people to, to read it firsthand is so it gives them an idea what I went through because I can empathize with people struggling with diabetes. Diabetes is a condition. Mm-hmm. It's not a disease. And the other thing too is that is that buildup of sugar inside the body that causes diabetes. It's also the same sugar buildup, if the diabetes is ignored, that causes heart disease. Mm-hmm. And erectile dysfunction. A- erectile dysfunction. <laughs> stroke. Stroke, yes. blindness, oh, okay. and limb amputation. Yes. It is not diabetes because diabetes in itself is just a condition where your body, does, your body becomes insulin uh, resistant. That's it. Mm-hmm. The sugar is what doing the damage. So the sugar needs to come out. Right. And the best way to, to burn up the sugar is... Put, do some exercise. And in my book, I tell people how long they have to do the exercise for. Mm-hmm. And I know because it's difficult for a lot of people, diabetics, what I've done is I put an entire program on my website, mm-hmm. what to eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and how soon should you eat when you get up in the morning within the first two hours. Okay. And, and also, what would someone have for breakfast? Breakfast, have some egg whites. Okay. And, some, uh, and brown bread. All or you right. can have a whole eggs because eggs doesn't really increase your cholesterol anyways. Okay. Right. But I recommend that you eat some, uh, maybe some omelette. Mm-hmm. But this What's is... What's kind of the overall general plan? We've got about two minutes left. What overall Kind of the overall plan. diet plan. Like what, what is the, you know, what like low glycemic index, green leafy vegetables, that type well, of thing. eat mostly brown rice and pasta with vegetables and some meat. But eat them in small portions and spread them out over, over six meals a day. Okay. Because when you go after three hours without a meal, your body begins to stop, you know, depending on sugar. So spread out the meals and I have everything written out in the program on my website where people can download. Okay. And how do people get that program? Uh, people, they have to go to justfordiabetes.com okay. or diabetesselfcure.com. Okay. So people out there, including myself right here, are very excited about the pasta. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about, I stay away from pasta. <laughs> technically, you can eat. And I also, the program also comes with some cooking demonstrations, which I do as a free bonus for people. Mm-hmm. And the exercise, I'll that. exercise program. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes with a menu cycle. So people follow the cycle. And it tells them why you are eating this at a certain time of day. So I have it all illustrated in a way that it makes it simple and straightforward for the person who's using it. Right. So is this just for people with type 2 diabetes or can anybody follow this? Anybody can follow this, particularly people who are overweight. People who are overweight. Because okay. the, the, the program is designed to really help you to lose weight 
and to keep it off. Right. right. And it's keep, a lifestyle, really. It's a lifestyle change. Yes. yes. To keep yeah. it off. It's a huge lifestyle change. And so um, that big sedentary uh, issue, and it's a big issue out there. Yes. People sitting on the couches, couch potato, drinking beers, eating whatever they want. They're at risk for this uh, condition and heart disease and erectile dysfunction and all sorts of things that and inflammation swirls through the body and, you know, you get joint pain. And there's so many things as a result of type 2 diabetes. Exactly. And all that is not necessary. Actually, diabetes diet can be very, very... I'm a professional chef too, by mm-hmm. the way. So the cooking demonstration, I'm trying to show people how to have tasty meals. That's fantastic. I've always said if I won the lottery, I would get a pool boy and a chef and a hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> In that order. No, <laughs> definitely a chef. Ernest Kwanza. Thank you so much. Author of Diabetics Journey, How Type 2 Diabetes Can Be Reversed and Cured. Um, the website again is... Just for diabetes.com and diabetesselfcure.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to actually talk about heart disease next. Uh, coming up, we're talking with Dr. John Weisler about the ischemic trial, the ischemia trial, I think it is. Anyway, you'll want to hear this. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Thanks so much for joining me. Good evening, Maureen. Uh, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Did you enjoy the game? today. Oh, sure. Lots of fun. Oh, yeah, it was a great game. Did, Always a good time. Did your team win? <laughs> We've got Winnipeg yeah, listeners. <laughs> yeah, I think I was I think I was going for the Bombers, right? I'm a BC Lions fan, but uh, and, and I like both teams. But yeah, I was I was pulling for the Bombers. So I was pretty happy with the result. Fantastic. That's great. Well, thanks so much for taking time this evening. And uh, so lots of uh, studies out lately about um, the heart. And uh, so one is the ischemia trial. And so I'm you know, I've got to admit, I haven't delved into this too much, and so I'm hoping you can and make some sense of it for our listeners. So, if you wouldn't mind oh, tell us, telling us about course. the ischemia trial. Yeah. So this is a this is an interesting um, trial because, um, you know, and, and it's gotten a lot of press. And the, the sort of the one of the big messages that you'll see in the papers or something is that um, you know stenting and bypass grafting proven not effective for management of stable coronary artery disease. And so, you know, implying that all the stents and the bypass operations, but a lot of them that we do aren't, um, aren't as useful as we'd hoped. So this was a really big trial because, you know, people have, in cardiology have argued this back and forth uh, for a long time. And this looked at patients who had, you know, stable coronary disease. So they had, you know, blockages in their arteries and they maybe had chest pain, but it wasn't people who just had a heart attack. Those patients are different. And then they followed 5,000 patients. Uh, the trial took 10 years, and sort of the average length that people were in the trial was about three and a half years. And they followed them, and, and they found people that had you know, significant coronary disease, so significant blockages, uh, many of whom had angina. And then they randomized them to either you know, try really hard with medications alone first or to you know, have an angiogram done and any blockages that look significant would be opened right away. And by opened, they would be opened either with a stent procedure, so a little balloon angioplasty in a stent, or coronary bypass grafting if the blockages were too difficult to stent. And then they followed them over, um, you know, this trial ran for 10 years, and they followed patients looking for the occurrence of death or heart attack or heart failure uh, or other outcomes. And they found no significant difference between the two groups. So, you had these blockages in patients that you'd think like if you look at an artery and you say, oh, that artery is blocked, that doesn't look very good, we should open it. But in fact, it didn't make a difference to most of these endpoints. So people did just as well if they stayed on medications alone. 
that's amazing, and that that's practice changing for cardiologists, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, it kind of. I mean, it, it kind of is. I mean, the um, it's it's quite an impressive result and an impressive trial. Um, it actually does build on you know older evidence, Marine, that we'd had. There was another trial called Courage that was published back in two thousand seven. Again, looking at people who had coronary disease and maybe some chest pain, and it looked at just angioplasty versus medications alone. It showed the same thing, and people found some problems perhaps with this trial, which is one of the reasons they did this one. But it does it does really, um, I think, lend a lot of credence to um, using medications and lifestyle as the first treatment for most patients. Uh, so, you know, we always teach that when you have a blocked artery, it's really a problem throughout your whole body, like a systemic problem, because the arteries are inflamed and they're accumulating cholesterol plaque. And, um, you know, you can you can fix one blockage, but it doesn't control the underlying disease process. So over time, you're going to get more blockages if you don't control your cholesterol, control your weight, you know, exercise properly and all the rest of those important factors. Yeah, interesting. Now, the process of opening up the vessels is called revascularization, correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah. That that includes either stenting or bypass. Yes, that's right. Revascularization. And so bypass grafts have become so common, they've been likened to root canals. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They they do them at all sorts of ages, uh, you know, advanced age as well. Yep. And I'll, I'll hear people joke like, how old were you when you got your zipper, meaning the incision on their chest and they had their bypass done? Right. And uh, yeah, it's, it's extremely widely done, a very commonly done surgery. And, you know, so, so, is, so is angioplasty, so it's our angioplasty and stenting. They're very widely done and almost routine. So, so this, I think this will change practice for sure. So is this going to, um, I mean, for all those people who've had the zipper procedure and just have to go to a Florida beach to actually see mm-hmm. how common it is, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> the men proudly yep. um, sporting their zippers like they're a scar. Um, anyway, is this, you know, something that is going to take a little while to change? Are people going to have the confidence in this? Um, or, the, you know, what about the physicians who actually do these procedures? Um, How are they going to make a living? No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) I I think we'll still have lots to do. So that's a great question is how will this trial be applied? And I think it will be applied, you know, differently by different physicians. They have to, you know, really get used to this data. This is quite new. It only came out on I think two two weeks ago, right. and the full publication isn't yet um, available. There are. It's important to look at who was studied in the trial and who wasn't. So, um, patients who you know had some angina and had an abnormal um, you know imaging test, like a nuclear stress test or other types of stress tests, they were included in the trial. People that had terrible chest pain, so terrible angina that they couldn't put up with, they weren't included in the trial. So they went. They were just sent off to get the artery open so they would feel better. Um, and then also the trial doesn't look at people who have a heart attack. So when you have a heart attack or what we call an acute coronary syndrome, um, those patients are different. You're at a higher risk. So those patients still do better getting their artery open. And some types of heart attacks need the artery open right away. They also excluded um, a particular type of blockage. So um, they, they did CT scans on all the patients to look at blockages in their heart. And if you had something called a left vein, which is maybe the most critical artery in the, in the heart, if you had 50% more blockage of that, they weren't included in the trial either. They were felt to be too high risk. Also, people whose heart muscles had been damaged before, so the heart didn't pump as well, they also weren't included. So, you know, I think the, the cardiac surgeons and the interventional cardiologists will still get lots of work to do. The, the one thing, the one signal that came out of this trial that still was better with 
having angioplasty or, or bypass, so revascularization, was, was the symptom of angina. So if you had fairly frequent chest pain or if you had significant amounts of chest pain, you still tended to do better um, having revascularization done. So you did better if you had the procedures, you felt better. So you didn't live longer, but you had a better quality of life. And so for a lot of patients, that's still an important um, an important. Um, you know, thing to look at. And the, the comparison group, the group on medical therapy alone, I mean, doing medical therapy well can be very difficult. You know, some people need a lot of pills that they may not want to take or it may be cumbersome or they may have side effects from. So I think this will change practice and I think it will sort of sort of gradually over sort of three to six months infiltrate our guidelines and sort of help us change things. But I still think there's going to be a big role for, you know, angioplasty and bypass in the future, maybe just not quite as big as it is now. Joining me on the line is Dr. John Weisler. He's a cardiologist and he's a regular health contributor to this program. And uh, we're just talking about some of the latest studies. And I've asked him to uh, talk about the Apple Heart Study. Dr. Weisler, thanks so much for staying on the line. Yeah, thanks for having me, Maureen. So so we talked about a... this on Twitter, you and I. Let's yeah. just be clear. Okay, and that's why I invited exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, we, we discussed this. And it's a really interesting study as well. Um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it uses the, the Apple Watch. and it, uh, So it's called the Apple Heart Study, and it focused on an algorithm on the Apple Watch trying to detect atrial fibrillation. And atrial fibrillation, for those who don't know, it's the most common cardiac rhythm disorder. Approximately you know, 25% of the population will get it at some time in their life. And in this condition, the heartbeat is irregular and the top part of the heart doesn't squeeze properly. So when it doesn't squeeze properly, the blood can sit there and form clots and those clots can break off and cause a stroke. And it's a big cause of stroke. Your risk of stroke, if you have it, increases with age. But And so that's it's one of the conditions we use blood thinners for. So the Apple Watch has this built-in heart rate monitoring ability. And those of you who like technology, you know, the, the latest Apple Watch can actually do your ECG. You put your finger on the crown of the watch and it will give you your heart rhythm. This study, um, it was just published, but it started in 2017. So it focuses on older versions of the Apple Watch. And those older versions, they don't have the ECG on them, but they have like an optical heart rate sensor, a green light that the device shines on your blood vessels while you're wearing it on your wrist. And it can read your pulse wave. And so it can see what your pulse is. And so um, it was it was done, you know, with, with Americans that owned the watch and owned an iPhone. And um, they had to consent. And, and then... Um, if they consented, then the the device would monitor their heart in the background, sort of on, on its own, um, and and look for atrial fibrillation. If it if it found an irregular rhythm, which one of the causes would be atrial fib, then it would notify the person, the, the individual, who then had to take further steps. And so, if they were notified, they then had like a telemedicine visit that was set up, so a doctor would see them through their iPhone through a little video chat app. And if they didn't have any high-risk features, like they weren't having chest pain or feeling their heart really uncomfortable or something, then they would wear an ECG patch, which is a, a patch that was mailed to the patient that they wore on their chest for two weeks to try and confirm the, the rhythm. And, and then from there, they could have further treatment. So the impressive, um, the impressive thing in this study, Maureen, is that they were able to, in, in just eight months, they were able to recruit over 400,000 patients or people to be followed in the study, which is, you know, really impressive. The biggest cardiology trials of the new drugs, you know, maybe have 20,000 patients and many are smaller. So these are huge numbers. And then um, of this, of, of all the people that were followed during the study, about 2,000, so only about 0.5% 
uh, just over 2,000 received a notification that they had an irregular pulse. Um, of those people, about 33% would go on and be diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Uh, so, this, you know, it, it's um, an interesting result that, uh, that shows that this sort of device might be suitable for screening people for, for atrial fibrillation. Absolutely. And it's just amazing how technology and medicine are lying in the same bed, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so yeah, many advancements in medicine, yeah, uh, because of technology and, and artificial intelligence, at, at, I imagine. Um, and, you know, it's really going to change the way medicine is delivered. Um, for people who have atrial fibrillation, one of the hallmark symptoms is fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. is, is, does a speedier uh, diagnosis help patients uh, improve their quality of life? Is that part of this as well? Yes, it it certainly can, for sure. Because the, um, you know, sometimes uh, some people have very obvious symptoms from atrial fibrillation. They feel their heart thumping or it's very uncomfortable. Um, Some people, though, their symptoms are milder. They're just out of breath or they don't have the same, you know, energy level, um, particularly when they try to do some physical activities because their heart doesn't work as efficiently. So monitoring like this could potentially be uh, very valuable uh, and and allow them to have a faster diagnosis. We've used, um, I have a few patients in my practice that have the, the later version of the Apple Watch and they happen to also have atrial fib and it seems to correlate very well when the device thinks they have atrial fibrillation. It's pretty accurate. You know, it, it, uh, it works very well. So people are able to use that now. They can tell me quite precisely how much atrial fib they're having because a lot of people jump between the two rhythms. They'll have a normal rhythm for a while then have atrial fibrillation. And so it, it's, it's anecdotally, it's worked very well. And you know, other cardiologists I know tell me the same thing. Wow, it's amazing. And I imagine that there'll be other applications for other medical conditions as well uh, down the road. Yes. I'm sure Apple is um, up tonight thinking about that <laughs> with yeah. all of their software I mean, engineers. This trial should be looked at as sort of a proof of concept. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned that if you had an irregular notification, you're only diagnosed with atrial fibrillation about 33% of the time. doesn't mean that the other 60% didn't have it. Um, there are other rhythm disorders, extra beats, that can also be irregular that could fool the watch. But then also atrial fibrillation can be infrequent. So the confirmation with the ECG machine that the person wore was only two weeks. So especially for younger patients, their atrial fib might be less frequent. So they may have also, you know, there's, there's room to refine this, um, I think, for sure. But it's a, it's a really interesting idea on how we can start screening people for these potentially very serious um, conditions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Weisler, for joining me on the program tonight uh, to talk about these important studies about the heart. I always appreciate it. And we'll get you back because there's more I want to talk about as well because it's so important. And I just had Thanks, one last question for you. The cause sure. of all of this heart disease is... <laughs> Oh, the cause of all heart disease. Well, I don't know that I have one um, easy answer. I think you want me to give one word. The best one would be inflammation. Um, really, our heart disease and atherosclerosis is a disease of the like wall of the blood vessels and the, the vessel gets injured. And then you get inflammatory cells that are recruited there. So it's injury to the vessel wall and inflammation is a big factor. Things like cholesterol come in later, like the inflammatory cells that go to the um, go to the site of blood vessel injury, they suck up cholesterol and take it inside the vessel wall. And so we have focused on things like cholesterol a lot uh, in the past, and, and it remains very important, but there's other root causes, inflammation and other causes of the blood vessel injury, things like smoking, which cause inflammation and genetic predisposition. Of course. Well, excellent answer and a perfect segue into my next segment. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Dr. Weisler. You're welcome, Maureen. 
back to the bio diet and um, or or the keto diet. Now, David Harper, PhD, joins me. He's researched this extensively before he wrote this incredible book or Bible, I should say. Should be called the Bio Diet Bible. Um, but anyway, um, so the keto versus the bio diet is there a difference? Uh, no, it is actually a uh, what we call a, um, a well-formulated ketogenic diet, That's which means it provides full nutrition. Uh, not all low-carb diets are ketogenic, and not all ketogenic diets are the same. So this is the same diet that we use uh, in our clinical trials with uh, for women with metastatic breast cancer. Okay, so the, known as the bio diet. Uh, that's my name for that's it. Your that's your name, yeah. but is that the purest form of the ketogenic diet? Is that what you would say? Is that the best? I would best? say this is uh, a good guide for somebody that's new to ketogenic diets and is interested in getting um, science-based information about how to do it safely and with physician oversight. So if somebody says, I'm going to try the keto diet, they are to pick up this book, Bio you know, Diet. Yeah, you know, that's kind of why we wrote it. It's kind of why I got the idea in the first place because so many people are just getting information from the internet and, you know, what that's full of. So, so we, uh, I, I, I thought, you know, I'd been counseling people for years on this and, and they needed to get the right information so that they could do it in a healthy and safe manner. Right. Um, and so this, yeah, so I don't want to confuse people out there that this is the ketogenic diet and this is the best guideline uh, to do it. And this is research based. It is absolutely scientifically validated. Yeah. Yes. And so you've done clinical trials and come up with this. And this is really the best way to make decisions about your health, I think, is, is looking at what science is out there, what evidence, what clinical trials have been run. And, um, and then ultimately you've done, you know, you've gone from the bench to the book, which is amazing because oftentimes a lot of this research stays in the laboratory and never actually gets out to the public. That's true. That's true. And, and, yeah. uh, and a lot of the a lot of the studies that do get out to the public on nutrition are quite confusing because a lot of them are population-based or epidemiological, so they're not randomized controlled trials, and, and it's very difficult to control all the variables there. So it's not easy to get the truth about nutrition unless you really do these uh, quite expensive uh, randomized control trials. And then the media and others can um, inflame things, which is one of the problem, pun on word, play on words there. <laughs> um, you know, they can be inflammatory in this process or, or there's so, you know, diets are a fad. You know, there are so many different ones and, and I prefer that people assume a lifestyle, um, especially a nutritional lifestyle. So, so basically let's, uh, just for the listeners, give the background on, you know, the, the scientifically proven ketogenic diet, which will help you lose weight and improve your health. So what does it, what does it exactly mean? Well, a ketogenic diet is very low carbohydrates. So you're taking essentially uh, sugar out of your diet. You're taking um, other sources of carbohydrate, in particular starches, which are you know root vegetables. Um, unfortunately, your pasta, <laughs> bread, rice, darn, I just um, <laughs> potatoes, and and uh, but you can get fiber. So it's not a carnivore diet, although a carnivore diet would almost certainly be ketogenic. Uh, it's it. I, I'm I would say I'm mostly plants is what I eat. Um, but in terms of calories most of what I eat is fat. Uh, probably my, my diet would be 60 to 70% of calories from fat. Healthy fats. Uh, yes, healthy fats, which include saturated fats, by the way. Uh, and I don't eat uh, much in the way of vegetable oils unless they're monounsaturated, like okay. olive oil or macadamia or, or um, avocado oil. Okay, so what would be some of the good fats that you Those eat? three I just mentioned. Those three, yeah. Uh, Grass-fed butter, fantastic. Okay. Um, dairy, 
Fantastic. And does the grass-fed make a difference? Sorry. Yes, it does. The reason grass-fed makes a difference is um, when uh, dairy cows are fed grass grass instead of uh, grain, uh, they produce a very high proportion of omega-3 to omega-6. And it's the opposite on grain, which is why I don't think humans should really be eating grain or grain or seed oils, because that's full of omega-6, which is highly inflammatory. And as we just learned from Dr. Weisler, uh, inflammation is the root cause of cardiovascular disease. So, right. so if you want to avoid that, uh, grass-fed butter is your... That's your tray and it's so tasty. Okay. So a lot of people, um, they're maybe doing the ketogenic diet incorrectly and they're having bacon for breakfast and then ham for lunch and then a steak for dinner and, you know, some vegetables, maybe some low glycemic index vegetables. They're mm. dropping the weight and they're mm-hmm. going to drop the weight. They're and going they to will. be ketogenic. But oftentimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have high cholesterol. Yeah. Now, cholesterol is something that uh, can rise uh, as you adapt to a ketogenic diet. And by the way, usually when people are doing these changes, whether they're adopting a you know a ketogenic diet or a vegan diet, there's a bit of a honeymoon. And you, the first thing you're doing is getting yourself off of all that crap, all that sugar and processed food. And that's the best thing, you know, for anybody, any diet, just don't eat sugar, don't eat, don't eat processed foods, and you'll be a lot better off for it. Uh, but, but for ketogenic diets... Um, in our studies, mostly postmenopausal women, they're typically obese. We're getting probably up to about a third of women will actually get quite a, um, a out of range uh, LDL, which is the low density, so called bad cholesterol reading. Um, now, first of all, let me let me say that cholesterol is a good thing. If your cholesterol was zero, you'd be dead. Uh, cholesterol does all kinds of wonderful things. That's where our sex hormones come from. Mm-hmm. That's uh, it's it's with cell membranes. It's uh, important for nerve function. It's important. It's an anti-inflammatory and uh, antioxidant and so on. So you you need cholesterol. And essentially, there's two types. And you think of it as in a way transporting fats around inside the body. So the LDL take it from the fat stores to the cells to be burned, and the HDL is the so-called good cholesterol takes it away. Uh, where it might be building up, say, on your arteries. Um, so you want to have high HDL and and uh, and you want a moderate LDL. Now, the thing about LDL is there's not just one type, there's actually three subtypes. And it starts in this light, fluffy, very low-density type, and then uh, as it gives off its triglycerides, as it takes it from the stores to, the, to be burned, uh, then it goes into an intermediate form, and then it goes back to the liver to be recycled. Um, however... If you're on a high-carbohydrate diet, then your cells aren't using up that triglyceride. They're sitting there happily burning sugar all the day. And then when they do that, the triglyceride has nowhere to go, so it just kind of sits there in your blood, and so you get high triglyceride in your blood. And those uh, LDL cholesterols, they just keep getting smaller and smaller, and they become small particle LDLs. And then as Dr. Weisler was saying, they start getting incorporated in inflamed uh, epithelium of the blood vessels, and that's what leads to atherosclerotic plaques. Okay. So um, somebody who may register as a high cholesterol doing the ketogenic diet, um, what what can be said to them? I had another question too. I, yeah. I'll ask you that about the postmenopausal women that were, sure. they were mainly obese, um, you say in the clinical trials, or they were mainly in that obese category? Yeah, I'd say 95 plus percent people that come to ketogenic diets are to lose weight. But, uh, okay. but and, and, I'm, and I'm interested in that because obesity is one of the three factors in the axis of illness, but, right. but I'm more interested in how that helps them prevent and treat chronic disease. So it's not necessarily for somebody who might need to lose 10 or 15 pounds. Sure. I mean, it, yeah, it, it is, but those aren't the kind of people that typically come to... Not the ones um, that we recruit for our for okay. our trials because okay. they're often people that have comorbidities. So right. so they're they're also sick. In this case, they I'm working at the BC Cancer Research Center, Terry Fox Lab. So they they have uh, breast cancer. Although they're recruited from uh, the Ohio State University. Oh, okay. So the so the ones with the high cholesterol, we call them lean mass hyper responders. 
Um, and in general, and I, I'm not a physician, I'm a researcher, but uh, if the HDL is nice and high and the triglycerides are nice and low, then it seems like that's a pretty good um, measure for good cardiovascular health. And so the best way then if your LDL is out of range, if it's too high, is what they call a coronary artery calcium test, which is a very low radiation CT scan of the blood vessels in your heart that Dr. Weissler was talking about in terms of these stents and so on. And if those are all clear, then the high LDL probably isn't an issue. Interesting point though, you know, about half of people, in fact, they may say even three-quarters of people that have uh, cardiovascular accidents, heart attacks and strokes, their, their cholesterol is absolutely normal. So if we were going to come up with a marker that was going to predict cardiovascular right. accidents, the heart attacks and strokes, uh, we probably wouldn't use that anymore. But we've been stuck in this cholesterol-saturated uh, fat, statin thing for, for decades now. And, and the statin business is a trillion-dollar-a-year business. So, so we're not going to work our way out of that too quickly. Um, and by the way, statins are, are, are very important drugs for people that have had cardiovascular accidents. Um, but then there's the other question about is, you know, like in the UK where they're saying we should just put everybody on statins and, and that will be a good thing. I, I'm, I don't see the research that supports that. Right. And so probably once again, we go back to uh, diet and exercise. Uh, and do you think everybody should be on a ketogenic diet? Uh, absolutely not. Okay. Um, there are some contraindications. They're indicated in, in the book. There are some, they're really quite mm, complexly named uh, metabolic disorders that have to do with fat and ketone metabolism. Um, and then some people that have liver and kidney issues and, and pregnant women probably right. shouldn't start a ketogenic diet and so on. Um, and so there's those contraindications. And then, you know, if you're, if you're healthy and, and you're slim and you don't have any disease and then, you know, eat what you're eating, you're lucky. Uh, but when you consider that two thirds of Canadians or three quarters of Americans are now overweight or obese, and it is the most effective diet to reduce weight and to keep that weight off, we've shown that. Uh, actually, we've shown that time and again now, despite what you might read in some of the online stuff. Uh, ketogenic diets are the best way to lose weight and keep it off. Um, then I think people can benefit by it. But, but you should first get checked out by your physician, and I make that very clear in the book. Right, absolutely. No, it's a great book. It's a great read. And, you know, it's such a shame that people, um, that we have this obesity epidemic in Canada and the States. And, you know, and doctors are afraid to talk to patients. They say, don't mention it to the patient. The patient will be offended. The patients get offended. Ended. Uh, it's it's very hard. People are addicted to sugar, and you know the issues that occur as people age, which is what I've seen in my clinical practice: mobility, fractures, um, you know, other autoimmune diseases, um, cardiovascular issues. You know, and and people will talk to me, and I think, oh, it's so sad. They'll talk to me about the amazing health care that they're getting. They're obese. They've had a heart attack. They have, you know, been diagnosed with a devastating disease. They've got adult type two. Um, diabetes. Um, and when they can just, you know, oftentimes, you know, looking at food is medicine. Well, really. and, it, and, and it is, you know, there's a study in uh, Lancet, it's the global burden of chronic disease, what's the main cause? And it turns out diet has more impact on the global burden of disease than, than exercise, alcohol, smoking, uh, sedentary behavior all put together. So what's on the end of your fork is probably the most important lifestyle choice you'll make on a daily basis. And, you know, the cost of these chronic diseases, if you look at Type 2 diabetes alone in the U.S., uh, they estimate by 2030 it's going to be costing about $660 billion a year to treat. And that's more it's than just, the defense budget this year. So it's just a way, we, we can't afford it. We, yeah. we need to find a solution to this problem. You certainly and, do. And it's an easy one, actually. It's just 
quit eating sugar, quit, quit eating processed food, think about your food, and yes, exercise and sleep and stress management and so on are also important. And, and don't smoke, but you know... <laughs> But you could. It's not as bad for you, apparently, as what you eat. Uh, I don't think people should smoke. No. No. <laughs> well, I said don't smoke. Um, and but, moderate use of alcohol, please. Yes, moderate. But, you know, everybody who defines moderate is very different. And I, I was speaking to a crowd last week, and uh, there was about two or 300, and I asked them how much alcohol they drank. And they were all like, you know, two glasses a day or one a day. And I'm like, you know, well, I've doubled all of that. So, or you know, triple it, yeah. Yeah, and the glasses today are much bigger than, than yes. the wine glasses of, of yesterday. Year. Well, anyway, David G. Harper, thank you so much. PhD with Dale Drury. Uh, thank you so much for writing this book and um, oh, my pleasure. and for sharing it and for coming on and talking about it. I really appreciate it. Great. Enjoyed it. And uh, look forward to next time. Yeah, we'll get you back. I'm Thanks. Maureen McGrath, and we're talking about your bad sex habits next. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Lene St. John is the Mama Sutra, and she has a new user manual for um, you, for your workbook around se- bad sex habits. And she's going to talk to us about bad sex habits. Lene, thanks so much for joining me on the line. Thank you so much, Maureen. You're welcome. Uh, I'm so sorry we don't have a lot of time here, but um, what That's are some okay. of the bad sex habits? Yeah, so uh, I was recently interviewed for uh, Glamour Magazine, and one of the questions they had was about seven bad sex habits to break before you're married. And so I'll just list them out real quick, and hopefully we can get time to chat about them. But basically, not talking about sex. You know, one of the things that is really crucial when you're in a partnered relationship is to be able to talk about everything, and that does include sex and sexual behavior, right? Absolutely. Um, another is judging your partner's fantasies. So fantasies can be really vulnerable and not all fantasies have to be acted out. And if you judge your partner about things they're interested in, that's a, that begins to go down a really sort of not so great path. <laughs> Nobody likes to be judged. <laughs> that's right. And we all have fantasies. Everybody has fantasies. Yeah, right on. It's uh, it's normal to fantasize. You know, plenty of people dream about doing things, and yeah, things can work out and in really great ways. Um, another one of these fears, or these these bad sex habits, I should say, is approaching sex and sexuality with fear. And Maureen, you and I have talked about like when you're kind of scared of talking about the thing, or <laughs> it it can be, uh, yeah, it can it can really stunt you, right? Of course. Um, yeah. So <laughs> the fourth one, believing your partner is always down, right? Like sometimes stuff is going on in our lives and we don't always get a chance to really get in the mood or, or we might not even be in the mood because stuff's going on at work or stuff's going on at home or, you know, ill parent or whatever the case may be. Always assuming that your partner is going to be ready for action is, you know, isn't always great. <laughs> right. Mismatched desire is very common. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then the last few here, thinking what works now will always work, right? Mm-hmm. We change, we evolve. The things that we're interested in today, five years from now, might not be the go-to move. <laughs> <laughs> Get some the new moves. Work- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get some new moves. You know, the things that work for us, today 
you know, fast forward in the future, or even just looking back in your past, you can probably see that maybe something you liked when you first, you know, became active or whatever, you know, those things aren't really, you know, tuning in for you anymore. <laughs> so um, next one, thinking it doesn't count if there's not penetration, right? A bad sex habit if you think that penetration is the end-all, be-all, or the only <laughs> game in town, there's, there's so much more. And I'm sure you talk to your, your listeners about this on a regular basis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Constantly. So, okay. So yeah, that... it's, it's, it's super important, right? There's they a, are. There's a whole menu of things that people can do. Exactly. That's um, the lucky set. Have we, have we got all seven? One last one, forgetting to have fun with each other. Okay. It's important to keep having fun. You know, so many <laughs> people look at sex as a chore anyway, and uh, when you got to look at it mm. as, as, uh, as a playful time. Dr. Lene St. John, uh-huh. thank you so much. You still have that free chapter available. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I do. Come on to my website, themamasutra.net. And you'll see the link to my book. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You're welcome. You too. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm Maureen McGrath. (laughs) Up next, the breakup coach who hasn't been brokenhearted before. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Nancy Ruth Dean joins me in the studio. Everybody wants to find love in their life, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. Nancy was a matchmaker, and now she's a breakup coach. And perhaps that service is so much more necessary than even the matchmaker. Because you may think you have found the one, you may fall head over heels, the chemicals are being released in your brain, you have never been happier, you are aroused, and then boom, they break up with you. Nancy Ruthine, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Her website is hellobreakup.com. How did you come to do this work? So interestingly enough, people often think that it's because I went through a bad breakup, but it was actually through what I observed working in the matchmaking industry. So while I was very busy interviewing people and screening them to find the perfect match, I couldn't help but notice that people were not seeking any breakup support or any breakup coaching or even really seeing a therapist after. It was like they were just moving on from one relationship to the next. And as you know, could be women's intuition or just natural intuition. I just sensed how much more impactful dating would be if people could actually get support after a breakup. So after several years in matchmaking, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create a more spiritual, emotional process to ending a relationship and so people can actually create healthier and happier relationships thereafter. And this is for people who are ending a relationship and those who are on the receiving end of ending a relationship as well. Is that correct? Yes. So for anybody who's thinking about it and they're struggling with that and then people who are processing their breakup. Yeah. Because, I mean, who can't relate to that? Nobody wants to hurt anybody else's feelings and nobody wants to be on the receiving end or very few people want to be on the receiving end of a breakup. Recently, 
I have sent a client to you because she has been attracted to men who have severe anxiety. And so I suggested, and and she's afraid to break up. She was afraid to break up with the last one, and she's afraid to break up with this one. And um, so I've actually suggested that she speak to you in part because she needs to understand why she's attracting men with such high anxiety levels. So is that, uh, you know, a common referral? And and how would you deal with somebody like that? So often people are deaf. We're creatures of habit. okay, and that also includes how we show up in the dating world. So if you really do take a look at who you've dated, you will see these patterns. Now, what these patterns suggest will give you insight into where you're coming from. So if you're only aware that, let's say, you attract men with anxiety, um, it may be possible that there's some sort of mirror mirroring going on here. So it can be very individual for the person, but really taking a look at almost in this kind of unusual way, maybe even asking the question, why do I, why do I like guys with anxiety? What do I get from that deep down? It's not a question you can ask right away. It's one of those questions you have to go away with, think about and really process what's going on for you. And why is that the pattern that you see in the guys that you are dating? Because typically in, and I'm just thinking of this particular patient, um, the guys that she was seeing, they had this anxiety to please her, to do everything for her, to go the extra mile all the time. And so I thought maybe she felt there was something missing inside of her or that she didn't feel quite good enough that she needed this sort of um, this honor, this, you know, constant admiration, these gifts, um, you know, excessive trips and um, this type of thing. But she wasn't happy. And she realized at the beginning she loved it. And then toward the end, she didn't love it. And then, of course, with social media, the trouble she ran into was that these guys would use social media to disturb her all Mm. the time, whether they had broken up or whether they were in the relationship. So they were constantly checking on her and almost obsessed with her. Yeah, there's a there's so many patterns that we hear. I mean, the let's say the overprotective boyfriend being one or the super clingy girlfriend being another. And again, asking that question, like, why do I like this? Because it's great in the beginning, as you said, and then all of a sudden it becomes worrisome. So there's always going to be some sort of childhood programming attached to what we've seen as children and even very simple interactions as very impressionable creatures we are. And then we go into these adult relationships and get to ask ourselves, wow, what did I see or what did I learn that had me attracted to these types of people and getting myself in these types of circumstances. It's so interesting. And this woman had an opportunity to look back on a few boyfriends ago and when she first started dating and she said, you know, really the best one was the guy that was super chill. The guy that was just so easygoing and, you know, nothing mattered. And um, and she really was in love with him at the time, but didn't think that that was what she wanted. But now she's sort of learning that maybe this is more the type that, I don't know, that she could spend the rest of her life with. Not necessarily that particular guy, but is, is that somebody? Or do you recommend to people get help for your anxiety? 
Yeah, I think I definitely think anxiety is something that comes out in our intimate relationships. So if you know, it's not up to your partner to take care of the other partner's anxiety. That's not exactly why we get into partnerships, but we do have partnerships with people who have anxiety, but they really need to see how that's affecting the relationship. So sometimes giving our partners advice on you need to fix your anxiety can be a tough task, but they've really got to want to work on that for sure. And that certainly can backfire because the other thing that happens with people in relationships with people who have anxiety is those people can shed responsibility and they tend to blame the other person for everything that's going wrong in their lives or with their body or whatever. They're feeling anxious, they're feeling upset, and they can blame the other person. And so that can make for a very unhealthy and toxic relationship. Is that somebody you should break up with? (laughs) Whoa, there's so many people with anxiety out there that are scared now. There's, uh, you know, I have anxiety myself and I understand when it can really feel and I say feel as the operative word, it can really feel like your partner is triggering you. And and it's so easy to put the blame in those moments because you're just hoping that you'll find a partner who can control themselves in such a perfect way that you never feel disturbed. But if we are partners and we do have anxiety, we really got to check ourselves and really need to know that this is something that is going to show up in our relationships and ultimately affect them if we don't take control. And that's why it's so important to see somebody like you, Nancy, a breakup coach who can help people to process. You know, um, when we go through things ourselves, we have so much more compassion for other people. And so you have that understanding. Anxiety is the number one mental illness in North America. So many people suffer. It's also a very silent disorder. So you would never guess that people would have anxiety. I would never guess that of you. And um, but it's very, very common and we can have it at certain times in our lives and then it can go away at other times. Um, So I would suggest if you are going through a breakup, if you're having difficulty processing or thinking about breaking up with somebody, you don't want to hurt anybody, I would head over to hellobreakup.com and speak with Nancy Ruthstein because she's amazing. She does amazing work. Needless to say, I send so many of my patients to see her and they all come back raving and are so grateful. So thank you so much for the wonderful work you do, Nancy. Thank you so much for that. You are very welcome. All right. I imagine that uh, your phone will be ringing off the hook or they can head on over to your website, hellobreakup.com. And I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.